my style and my favorite way of cooking is the juxtaposition between perfect geometric shapes and, and control. Imagine wrapping a piece of rectangular fish in multicolored different vegetables and, you know, roulade and then sous vide and then poach and then slice and trim. And it looks like a geometric shape, but balancing that presentation with naturalism and maybe putting a puree next to it that is a little bit thick and you can stick untrimmed, uncut, you know, pea sprouts and tendrils and flowers. And so it's, you're showing control, you're showing technique, but then you're letting nature grow right next to it. That's my favorite way to present and cook. Amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Get ready for an exciting and enlightening interview with Chef Brakil Gore one of Florida's finest culinary talents on this week's episodes of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chef, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. In this episode, we'll take a trip down memory lane and learn about Chef Kilgore's childhood memories and how they have influenced his cooking. You'll also discover the fascinating details of his culinary journey, including his training and the people who have inspired him along the way. You will get a taste of Chef Kilgore's innovating style of cooking, which he describes as modern American with Florida flavors, and find out about his brand new restaurant, Marigold, and the food program at the Arlo Winwood Hotel in Miami. We'll also dive into Chef Kilgore's approach to cocktail pairing and learn about his sources of inspiration and creative process. Plus, you will hear his thoughts on the vibrant food scene in Miami and the lessons he's learned since being named Best Chef in America by Food and Wine magazine. Don't miss this delicious episode with Chef Brad Kilgore on Flavors Unknown. Hi, Chef. How are you? Doing great. How are you? I am really good. I'm really excited to have you on the show. We have been trying to connect, you know, throughout the <laughs> years. So I'm glad and I'm glad so, that I'm spending some time here in Miami and uh, that we can do it face to face. Me too. So that's great. Welcome. So are you originally from Florida? No, I'm originally born and raised in Kansas City. So I lived there until I was about 18, went off to culinary school in Denver, made my way through Italy, then Chicago for a while before Miami. If you are thinking about your childhood, so what food and smell reminds you of, of your childhood? That's a great question. Barbecue. Okay. And brownies. Brownies was the thing that my mom would make. So that's definitely a smell that you would find in our, our childhood kitchen. When you say barbecue, I have to ask you what kind. <laughs> well, the best barbecue in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. I, knew, I knew it was going to come to that. Yes. Kansas City barbecue, you know, going with my dad on his lunch break to explore different barbecues or our favorites. 
And there's certain areas in Kansas City where you can just smell the smoke, you know, from the different barbecues yeah. on the same street. Integrated those memories into your, your cooking? Well, I've got a good brownie story, and it's my first recipe I ever created, or excuse me, followed. Better Homes and Garden cookbook that was on the shelf, my mom's cookbook shelf from, I think, the 50s. And she was at work. We were on summer break, and I decided to make brownies because I wanted them. Well, I got the measurements of salt and sugar mixed. So I put about a tablespoon of sugar and a cup and a half of salt, and I put them in the oven and I baked it and I was so excited. And when they came out, it looked funny and it definitely tasted a lot worse. It was gaggingly salty. I think I even shed a tear. I was young. I was like eight or nine or 10. That's a fun one. Because um, obviously salt is a great, you know, flavor uh, and answer, but that was a bit too much, I guess. You know, in life, <laughs> unless you're making like a brine for chicken, if you're measuring yeah. a cup and a half of salt, True. double check your measurements. <laughs> that was the first learning for you. That was my very first recipe. <laughs> very first recipe. Okay. So you've made food your life's work. So yes. Why? I started off as a dishwasher in sixth grade. I must have been about 10 and a half. And it just steamrolled into continuously having jobs in the industry. I liked working. I liked earning a paycheck. And if I wasn't working on the weekends, I'd probably be raking the lawn or cleaning the gutters or some, you know, not so fun things that my dad wanted us to do around the house. So it was a great excuse to, you know, get out of cleaning the gutters. That being said, I, I under, the culture, I was very young, clearly. I did dishwash until I was about 14. And I was working with adults. You know, that was their job and their career and their professions. Even at, you know, the diners and the smaller entry-level restaurants that I started at. And I always saw there was something else I didn't know. And there was something they were prepping. And it didn't look that hard. You know, you put the flour in, you put the butter in, put the buttermilk in. And, and, and eventually you had like this biscuit dough. And you rolled it out until it was two inches and you cut it with a circle. It didn't seem overly complicated. So even at 11, 12 years old, I was asking for more responsibilities. I even jumped on the, on the hotline of the breakfast and brunch place and was making omelets and skillets and things on the flat top about at 12 years old. They didn't really want me doing that, but I just jumped on it. That being said, I started getting excited about it. It was something that I could engage with. And I, I figured this out later, my mom's side of the family, they're all artists. I can't draw or paint or any other medium or sculpt, but I really did find food to be an avenue for me to be creative, not only flavor, but presentation and plating. And, yeah. Plating, absolutely. So I think all that encompassing together gave me the passion to keep going. Okay. You remember when that passion, this like haha moment, mm -hmm. you know, was for you? I took a culinary program in high school that was accredited to be one of the top ones in the country. And the teacher, his name is Bob Brassard, he's still there. He's done an amazing job with these students. And he saw something in me. And we would do five-course tasting menus on Wednesdays once or every other week or a month or something like that And at 15, 16 years old. So he was teaching us how to cook and how to present and how to plate and... He must have seen something in me and his confidence in me, I guess that would be my version of the aha moment, you know, having someone believe in you and know that. And I wasn't interested in going to a traditional school route. So it just seemed like the, the right way to go. 
that was your first influential person. So who has been like the other influential person in your career? My wife. Okay. Yeah, we've been together since we were 19. We met in culinary school and high school. She is has always been there to drive me, let me know, you know, there's there's more in there and and how to see things from a different perspective. And I think that is extremely valuable, has been extremely valuable in my growth and my career. I moved up is she in the industry as well? Yeah, she's a pastry chef. Okay. What's her name? Because you mentioned her name you. is Soraya. My wife's Soraya Kilgore. She's now a full time mom. We just had our first son six months ago. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, I didn't know so that. Much. Okay, great. And so just having her perspective and her push and her drive, letting me know that you got to do it yourself. No one's going to do it for you. And even you can still be a, a leader and you can still bring people up with you. But, you know, it's a tough world out there. And, and there's some people that want you to exceed. And I want my team to succeed. But there's also other people that just want you to get in line and, and follow their path. And I didn't realize that at a young age. I thought everyone was out to help each other. You know, maybe I was a little naive. And in the end, she helped a new perspective to really elevate my career. Okay. You mentioned before that throughout the journey to Miami, you went to Italy. So uh, how was that experience over there? So how long did you stay there? Where? Sure, sure. Lucky enough to two summers, one directly after high school, kind of in conjunction with that high school culinary program, but we were out of school at that point. And that was in Tuscany, a little bit outside Grosseto. Okay. In a mountain, on a mountain, excuse me, with, you could see the view all the way to the ocean if nice. there was a clear morning. And it was in a, you know, 150, 200 year old villa. And we worked with the chef of the villa. You know, we, you could spend more of a vacation or if, or you could spend time in the kitchen. And, and I, you know, I learned to make gnocchi and different sauces and we were hand rolling pasta, really fell in love with handmade pasta. You know, I wasn't good at it yet at that time, but I really got into it. And then the second time was actually after culinary school. So it must have been two and a half, three years after that in uh, northern Italy in Lombardia, a little bit south of Milan in a small town called Salice Terme. And that was an Italian man that owned a hotel and restaurant that also owned a restaurant in the United States, ended up moving back to Italy through a chef in Denver where I went to culinary school at Johnson Wales. He knew that I'd been to Italy down the pipeline. He goes, hey, they're looking for, you know, probably cheap labor and some help for the summer. Sure. <laughs> Do you want a room? And, and I got 50 euro a week and I got a room and I worked five or six days a week. And then on my days off, I would, I had, a, I bought a train pass before I went out there and I would jump on the train in the morning and I'd go to wherever I could get back before the end of the day so I could get on my shift in the morning. Before we come to you know your new project here and marigolds at the Harlow Winwood Hotel in, in Miami. How would you describe your style of cooking? I want to give you something you might recognize, maybe have an element of nostalgia or recognizability, but on the palate and maybe presentation, it's, it's new. I, I do and I have done some other concepts giving you combinations of things that, that don't traditionally work, that aren't stemmed in classic dishes. But I think my heart has always been understanding and knowing the classics, originally French, 
and then into just European cuisine in general, and then world cuisine. I love, you know, Thai food because they're classics for a reason, you know, and, and it's not, I'm not saying reconstructed or deconstructed, you know, it's just inspired by. I do really like the whole thought of the dish and the way of how it's going to be presented, what's the temperature going to be like, how it's going to be eaten. It's not just, it can't just appease me. So stylistically, you know, it's food with no boundaries, no borders in the way of, you know, we live in a world where everything's at your fingertips. I like to use spices. There's not a lot of spices grown in South Florida or Kansas City, you know? <laughs> so if you can bring spices from India and Asia, what's the difference between bringing some other ingredients? And, you know, at the same time, I think chefs are somewhat responsible to support their local communities and source locally when it when it's good and when when it's quality and, and when it's in season. So I try to combine all these things and I want people to have a good time. I want people to be excited and not too many rules. I don't like too many rules. That, a lot of things come to my mind when I listen to what you just said. It's interesting talking about not too many rules, you know, and you mentioned that some of the source comes from French cooking. Then there's a lot of rules when it comes to French cooking <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> so which, while I like being here in the U.S. and being, you know, obviously having a French background is that the liberty that, you know, a lot of American chefs that have been trained classically French, you right, know, techniques right. take like, you know, the liberty to explore, I mean, you know, and and kind of like think outside of the box. So I think that's... that's I fell in love with French food. That's the backbone to our, my training and studying. I always wanted to work for Alain Ducat. I worked for Laurent Gras, who some say is the best French chef in the United States, or some I've heard David Chang say in the world. He was Alain Ducasse's number two right hand, whatever you want to call it, for a very long time. So that was my version of working for Ducat. But the one thing that French food and classic European food can't put it all in a category, but that was it was just missing the next level, the next layers. And when I had my first like real Thai food that was sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and spicy all at the same time and just blasted my palate, I was just blown away. I couldn't believe food could taste like that. So, you know, for example, I have a sabayon downstairs and we we put it on our version of Oysters Rockefeller, which is normally like a hollandaise, right? I understand and respect the technique, but I did it my own version. I sous vide the eggs so with a little bit of wine reduction and some cream so the eggs are perfectly cooked. If I give you a bowl and a bain-marie and a whisk right now, you're going to make it every day a little bit different. It's going to take you a long time to get it accurate, right? So... And then I blend it with induya, so spicy Italian salami, and just a little bit of butter. So it is a sabayon by definition. Sure. It is technique, yeah. Right, technique. It is poached, and we don't whip it by hand. We whip it in a siphon, right? And then we brulee it with a torch. So it's, it's an homage. It's a nod. It's a recognizing. It's understanding sure. the technique, but it needs to kind of be brought to a new level. And flavor-wise, French food, it's missing umami. It's missing acid so much. Sure. And sometimes it's very subtle, you know, balanced, subtle mm -hmm. taste. It is. So I had like a lot of chefs, you know, on, on the podcast and some that had like a different, you know, background, either coming from South Asian countries or coming from 
Latin American countries and so on being trained as, you know, French techniques with the French techniques. And they were, you know, when they opened their own restaurants that leveraged their heritage, then most of the time they went back to their country of origin and then they discovered a different techniques, different way of cooking than the French one they have been trained on. And, uh, you know, I, I still remember someone saying, going to Peru and then, you know, having those vegetables and, you know, chiles. And their like flavors are unbelievable. Using fire to right. really, you know, express like the New, most out of it. Nuances. And, yeah. nuance, and But when you look at it from a French technique, it would have been more like subtly, you know, cooked and, and so on and gentle cooking. Yeah. So, so that, I think that's, that's for me, really interesting into, to, you know, look beyond the French techniques nowadays, because there's so much things that exist, you know, right. in, in different cultures. And, and I'll even take it further into, there's a funny line, French food, cutting round things into squares and cutting, cutting square things into rounds. I always love that. But my reference to that is, the precision of really, really high-end French cooking with how things are cut and presented and geometric shapes and, and you know, just perfect placement, the hot cuisine, you know, where things are placed around the plate. I still love that. But my style and my favorite way of cooking is the juxtaposition between perfect geometric shapes and, and control, like Imagine wrapping a piece of rectangular fish in multicolored different vegetables and, you know, roulade and then sous vide and then poach and then slice and trim. And it looks like a geometric shape, but balancing that presentation with naturalism and maybe putting a puree next to it that is a little bit thick and you can stick untrimmed, uncut, you know, pea sprouts and tendrils and flowers. And so it's, you're showing control, you're showing technique, but then you're letting nature grow right next to it. That's, that's my favorite way to present and cook. If you like this episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast, I have a message for you now. Kick off the new year with a gift to yourself and get my new book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, published last November. You will receive a signed copy of the book if you order it from my website at flavorsunknown.com. So you're talking about like the inspiration coming from, you know, classics. What are the other sources of inspiration that you have? You know, traveling, traveling in general, you know, you kind of get stuck into your own vortex sometimes of your mind, your world, the people you talk to, what you see, where do you go out to eat? And you can just start tapping into your imagination just by stepping away from the operation a little bit or from the, the restaurant dinner service or, or the same environment. And I feel like when I travel that they just, the ideas start flowing. That's my favorite way. Also concepts, you know, I've, I've made dishes to, like the coral reef, I've recreated the coral reef, you know, edible with different sponges and textures and sauces and seafood. Visually, I like to, I can see things in my mind and I can recreate them. That was one thing that led me to learning pastry. I had trained pastry for years at 
a three-star and a one-star, and I, I do the desserts for my company. I might work with my pastry chefs, but conceptualization of them and you know most of the execution, we work together. That being said, in pastry, if you're good enough, if you can imagine it, you can make it, literally. So part of my inspiration to learn pastry was learning new techniques. Why can't you put an anglaise on a steak dish? You just take the sugar out and you have a custard sauce. There's a lot of things that you don't necessarily need sugar for the structure of, right? So it was almost self-serving to learn pastry in order to just get more savory techniques. But then I fell in love with it as well. And I spent, like I said, years. So it's also extremely important because it makes your menu more cohesive. When you have a pastry chef and her, his or her mind is over here on the left and you have the chef and his or her style is over here on the right, sometimes they're, you know, they don't flow. So in your sources of inspiration, you mentioned two elements and I want to come back to travels and then pastry. Travels, if there's like one specific area then like in the world that inspire you the most? Well, I would say the most recent inspirations. I think that I will never be stuck with one single or one major because because I just like to do things new and you know just continue growing and and just being intrigued. It was Japan and Tokyo and and not that it isn't still there's so much more to learn, there's so much more to see. I've only spent two weeks there. I feel like I mentioned umami earlier. To me when I experienced umami for the first time or at least realized I was experiencing it, I remember the dish, I remember what was ha what I was doing. It blew my mind because I'd read about it and in our culture Western culture, we have a much younger culture than, of course, in Asia. Sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just like everybody else is told, this color is orange, this is yellow, this is blue, this is red. It's instilled in their minds to be able to recognize it. So we've never been told about umami, but everyone's been experiencing it their whole lives, but they haven't been able to pinpoint it. And what I try to tell people is, do you... Imagine when you're extremely hungry and you go to McDonald's and you get a hot French fry and you're in the car and you can't wait to have that one French fry and you eat it and it's almost like like crack and you need to go get a second French fry. That is the sensation of umami happening. You know, in that case, it's direct MSG, which we can do another podcast about sure. that. Nothing wrong with it. And so I've just been chasing umami since that day and different ways to. That could be the name of your cookbook, Chasing Umami. <laughs> you know, I've, I've thought about that actually. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's, I think it might be. And so I fold in techniques using umami at all, almost at all times. I don't mm -hmm. force it, it's just how I cook now. Mm -hmm. And then, so the other inspiration when you mentioned, you know, the sweet world of like and bakery and pastry. So you gave an example with, you know, the Anglais. Is there's another example that comes to mind of things that you took inspiration from pastry and brought it into the savory world? A few years back, I actually did a presentation at the Philadelphia Chef Conference mm -hmm. uh, at Drexel. Yep. And it was, how did I title it? It was savory dishes using dessert techniques. So I did a lamb tartare with a feta gelato that I use a Paco Jet and it makes a completely savory 
doesn't you know, no sugar left over, but it is a custard-based ice cream that eats 100% just like an ice cream. But you know, you don't get any residual sugar using. You know, I studied a lot food science using like different sugars that aren't as sweet as your granulated sugars and things. That one's a atomized or powdered glucose, a few other things. Then there was a, a twill made from fien herbs. There is a charred onion anglaise. There was a, the, the twill, what was flourless twill. I'm trying to go back in my memory. Actually, it was a milfui. So I did a vinegar kind of almost like a gastrique whip. That was a meringue. And oh, it was a savory herb meringue that was dried into crisps and then stacked on top of each other with the whip of the vinegar in between with the, was a milfui, which was also almost a double play on it being a pastry milfui, right? Yeah. So it's something, there's probably knowing me two or three other riff, riffs on that. Good memory though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just, I love that. I actually have my New Year's Eve menu coming up and that's why it was top of mind with Anglaise. I'm doing a porcini Anglaise. No. Okay. To go with what? It's going to be with the steak, the beef entree. So it'll be a Wagyu bavette. And mm -hmm. we do a play on a French fry for our steak au poivre, where I take a, a russet potato and I put it on the vegetable peeler and we make a long sheet. We dip it into a solution of Japanese white potato starch, you know, granulated onion, sea salt, garlic, basically make this water solution that's well seasoned. We dip it into there and we roll it up very, very tight until it's about an inch and a half in diameter. We tie it with a little of a string, butcher's twine. We steam roast it, not at full steam, so it doesn't get mushy, so it cooks all the way through. Cool it, trim it, fry it, tie a chive around it, and season it with... You know, it's almost lunchtime here. <laughs> I'm drooling. <laughs> it is, so uh, I guess I have to book like uh, a table. Oh, no, we'd love that. <laughs> and marigold, so... Talking about this, so tell us, you know, what Marigold's is about, this new project of yours and, you know, the Arlo Winwood food program here at the hotel. You know, Winwood is our Brooklyn here in Miami yeah. or Williamsburg, you know, however you want to call it. I haven't it. discovered that yet because I arrived <laughs> just yesterday, but I, I want to discover more for sure. You know, it started off as a harbor for creatives, art galleries, you know, then came kind of the coffee shops and then came the restaurants and it's been a part of you know, my life for a while now and you know, close to a decade. And so the opportunity to open up the first hotel in Wynwood and be the culinary director of the property and represent, you know, Miami and the neighborhood and work with Arlo was, you know, just a great honor. At the same time, my partners, World's 50 Best recognized multiple times, mixologists from Bar Lab, their broken shaker property here in Miami, amazing cocktails. So they've been friends of mine. We respect each other for a long time and to be able to partner up with them. We've kicked that can around for a long time to work together. And this just seemed to fit. So it just was a no brainer. The property's beautiful, just opened up about a month ago. We've got three venues the signature restaurant on the ground floor, of course, open to the public. You can walk right in. It's called Marigold's Brasserie. We wanted to be a 
a blossom growing in the concrete jungle. That's kind of where the name concept came from. At the same time, a brasserie brings us to, you can find a little bit for everyone, handmade pasta. I do a play on a classic roast chicken, but it's playful. It's called Chicken and the Egg. We use all line caught local fish. Currently doing sashimi of flounder. We have a snowy grouper entree. I'm using royal red shrimp, which only two boats that we know of go out for it. They're hard to find. We're doing a carpaccio. It's a play on the kind of the Mediterranean brasserie dish of a lingusting carpaccio. We serve it with a churro. So it's like it's a Florida brasserie. So the element of Florida is our savory churro. The brasserie would be the, the carpaccio. And then we have some amazing desserts. One of my favorites is... I thought about Baked Alaska, and we don't want to be a gut-wrenching, heavy restaurant. We want people to be able to come up and, and go out. It's Miami. People like to go out. We have an upstairs lounge, too, that people a lot of times are having dinner, and they're coming up and finish their night upstairs at higher ground. And so I went lighter and tropical fruits with a Baked Alaska, but we couldn't be further away from Alaska, so it's a big Florida. So we've got layers of passion fruit, mango, pineapple, vanilla, all hidden underneath this almost impossibly light toasted coconut meringue. And then we take Haitian overproof rum and fuse it ourselves because you can't get the overproof with spiced. So I actually gently infuse applewood chips and other spices to give it that barrel age aroma and vanilla, of course. And then we toast it table side. Okay. Yeah. So how do you balance like the Florida inspiration and as well bringing those flavors coming from further away, you know, different horizon and this, you know, international in influences that. It's a very good question. About. And, you know, I don't want to ever pigeonhole us by saying we're a Florida restaurant. The growing seasons here want to accommodate that. There's not enough product, you know, down here for you to really operate what I think would be a great restaurant, but it's, it's, it is respect to our surroundings. So when it is high quality, when it is coming from the right place, we will highlight it, right? That being said, we have a dish called a grouper al pastor. <laughs> so al pastor is actually Middle Eastern inspiration, original. Mexico. Yeah, yep. exactly. And there's even spices, you know, Middle Eastern spices going into, it's basically shawarma, right? And that's where it came from. So, We take the grouper, we brine it in sea salt and water. We slice it pretty thick, like a double thick sashimi. We re-skewer, or then we put the slices back together. We skewer it with a wooden skewer. And I make an orange annatto seed and other aromatics that you would find in Al Pastor. Not as aggressive because it's not pork, it's fish we're talking about here. We marinate it on one side. We sear it on the plancha basically until it chars and burns. We glaze it once again with the marinade, and then we put it into a low oven that just gently cooks it through, barely cooks it. And we serve that with some of the marinade turns into a vinaigrette with a sauce that's been handed down from the Trogwo brothers. So here's me, you know, bending cultures, and also this sauce for them bent cultures as well. It was told to me as just cashew lime and basically brunoise shallots until they're deeply caramelized with brown butter fold in the cashews, the cashews will brown in that butter and gently blitz it and finish it with lime. That's how I was taught it. 
Of course, I have to put my own touch onto it. And we finish it with like tamari soy. I roast red miso in the oven to give it the deep toasted flavor. I fold it in. We use a little Szechuan chilies. And then we finish the dish with finger limes that are grown here locally in Florida. So this is taking a local ingredient and, and been kind of bending cultures. So you talked about your partnership, you know, when it comes to cocktail creations. And so how do you approach like the, the cocktail part of the menu? And are you thinking about the pairing aspects with, with your food? Well, a lot in Gabe and, and their beverage director, Christine Wiseman, they, they waited for me to write my menu first. They wanted to see where I was going. And that was, that was very thoughtful of them and I think very strategic. And they wanted to make sure that it paired well with the food. And that's at Marigold's. At the Higher Ground Lounge, we kind of did it the other way around, you know, because it's more of a cocktail focus, outdoor bar and lounge. Then they looked at my menu. They had a whole set of their own inspirations and sourcing with the, you know, local fruits and things. And, and then we sat down and we, we, we talked about it multiple times before we even got, or before they got behind the bar and, and began putting them up. I think they did an excellent job. And one of the th cocktails is called Caperberry. It's a version of a dirty martini. It's got a beautiful presentation. We actually collaborated fully on it. So we talked about it. We conceptualized it. And I basically made, here's the word again, I made like an umami olive brine using hondashi, white soy, fish mm -hmm, sauce, mm -hmm. green peppercorn juice, of course, caper juice, olive juice, and caper juice, a blend of all of these things. And then they took my umami brine did did their magic and we serve it on ice in a small pitcher with Christine came up with five or six versions or plays on all the classic martini mm -hmm. garnishes mm -hmm. and then you get a nice small martini glass on the side and you get two or three different pours into it and you throughout the experience of that one martini you can try it with the spicy chili stuffed olive or the lemon twist or the wow. pickled sea beans, which is a great touch. So it's a pretty cool cocktail. Okay. Maybe you can have it later. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure I will. <laughs> How would you describe the food scene in, in Miami? Growing. I think the food scene matches the city itself. I like to say that, you know, a few years ago when I got here, Miami was... It's a young city. When you say a few years ago, how many years have you been here now? 11. 11. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in Miami. It's a Miami now. You know, yes, from Kansas exactly. City, but it, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, can look it up and historically let me know how wrong I am. But if I think about it, the city of Miami is more or less, I don't know, 60, 70 years. You know, I don't know when it was actually created, but, but it started getting popular, of course, with Miami Beach and the hotels and that stuff was happening you know, right with the Rat Pack, right? You know, and coming out of that. So 40s after, you know, Havana kind of stopped, right? So 50s maybe, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, um, Influence of, you know, the Cuban yeah, influence. Yeah, you know, in other yeah. cities have hundreds of years, and this is just in the United States and then around the world, you have thousands of years of history. So it's really a very, very young city. And it's just getting into its second and, and third generation Miamians right now. And so it's, it's in a growing process. And so I compare it as when I feel like 10 years ago when I got here as more of a wild teenager. And now like <laughs> it's a young adult coming out of college trying to figure okay. out what it's going to do with itself. Yeah. And I think we're sitting in, in that as well with this hotel 
and Wynwood's growing up and there's a, we're the first hotel in Wynwood and, and there's a couple more coming, but they're a couple years away as well. So I think, I think it represents where we're at culinarily as a restaurant scene too. There's been a couple of great chefs over time, but if you think about a city of a couple million people and there's one or two or three or four historically, you know, the old school great chefs of the Norman Van Aken's, the Michelle Bernstein, the Allen sisters, you know, and, and forgive me if I miss a few names in there, there, there have been more, but you have a large population, but you had a quite a small fine dining scene. So if you think about it, you have 10 cooks there. How many cooks even went through a fine dining scene that stayed in the city that could hand down this lineage of, of trainings and culture? It's taken time. So right now, I think we're just at the brink of chefs pushing themselves. They're Miami chefs. They're either born here or they've been here long enough. They're not bringing, you know, an outside chef's concept here and running it, which I did. I was a chef for Jean George, you know, at St. Regis. You know, they're, they're doing their own thing. And we're just starting that, I would say. You know, in the timeline of life, we're at less than 5%, you know, of that. So where it's going is absolutely in the right direction. Michelin is here. You know, I helped, I helped that relationship as well with, with the GMCVB and introduced that idea to the city itself. And I'm so happy that they're here. This is going to push people to take our culinary scene to the next level. So if we go back, you know, through your career and since, you know, you got, like you were named the best new chef in America on the Food and Wine magazine, 16, and then, you know, all the, James Beard, you know, semi-finalist, I think, semi-finalist, and then Star Chefs and all of that. Luckily, one finalist. And one finalist, sorry. <laughs> I knew there was, I knew I was making a mistake. So you have seen me hesitating. Sorry, no apologies worries. for that. So what lesson have you learned since 2016? Because there's a lot of things that... It's been a wild been ride. Through. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Things never happen the way you plan them. In life, and I think anyone that reflects on their life probably realizes that be resilient, be fair, and try to take care of the people around you. You know, I think that for me is internally fulfilling is to really actually believe in, in trying to bring up people that really want it and want to be something. Most people in the industry, they would have if they were going to be a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, traditional jobs, work in an office, they would have done that. We, we don't really fit in that mold mm-hmm, for the most mm-hmm, part. That's mm-hmm. why we fit in this world. And so it's, it's a blue collar job with white collar opportunities. And what does it mean? Well, it's a hard working job. You're going to sweat. Yep. You're going to get, you're going to bleed. You're going to cry. You're going to work crazy hours. But now, like it used to be for years and years with chefs is that you worked at one restaurant, you're the chef, somebody else owned it, and, and you were just kind of stuck. And that's why a lot of chefs go through alcohol issues and drug issues and depression. And luckily, we're not f- stuck in that vortex any longer. The job hasn't changed. When you walk in the door and you cut up vegetables and meat and you heat it up and you put it onto a plate, that part hasn't changed. But the opportunities have. And and a lot of people haven't, they don't know that. 
or they don't know how to get it or they don't know how to ask for it. And and I, how do you really, you know, balance those opportunities? Because I'm sure that there's a lot of opportunities that could be thrown, you know, at chefs and so on, but they are not all like good opportunities. Don't correct? believe everything you see. And, and read if your agreements, read your contracts. Don't make somebody read it for you. And then ask a lot of questions. Don't sign your life away. You only get one. You only get one brain. Don't give it away. There's people out there that want to support and want to grow and want to be great, you know, partners, investors, you know, developers, whatever it may be. But, but just make sure that you're doing, being diligent and, and thorough. But as far as like creating opportunities, it goes with anything. You're never going to get it if you don't ask for it. And you got to, you know, some people don't necessarily believe in the word and it doesn't need to be magical or spiritual, but you do need to manifest. Because if you want to be a restaurateur or you want to be the owner of your own restaurant, it's not going to happen during dinner service on the hotline. You know, you got you to get out of your bubble or your circle and knock on doors and let people know that's what your goals are. And if you're performing and people know that you're performing at a high level or interesting level or, or you know, that people love, then that's the next step into, you know, kind of getting your dream. Thank you for, for sharing, you know, your thoughts on this. I'm going to switch now and finish like the, like the, our conversations with a series of rapid fire questions, if you're okay with that. So you and I are going on a tasting tour in Miami. So what are like the five spots that you are going to take me to outside of obviously here in Marigold? Because we'll have started with that. So not too far away from here, we'll go to Itamai. It is a, a Nikkei restaurant. Mm-hmm. I'm going there tonight. Oh, you are? <laughs> yeah. Great, great. They're good friends of mine. Okay. Then... You know, I would like to have Diego Oka cook for us. He is the executive chef of Lamar at the Mandarin Oriental and worked for Gaston Acorio for... I think he was the rising star with you, Yeah, absolutely. the same year, yeah. Totally. Very talented guy. And when, you know, he cooks like his chef menus and things, you know, they're very special. And I think Peruvian food is just delicious. I would like to go over to Walrus Rodeo that just opened up. I haven't been yet. And Jeff was a corporate chef for me in the past. And we used to run Brava, my restaurant, and for a long time. I haven't been yet, but I want to shout him out. And I know he's doing a great job over there. And uh, even Ian Fleischman was one of my chefs as well. He's right up the street from here at Fable. They just opened up a week and a half ago, doing great creative, you know, coastal Mediterranean and Middle Eastern inspired, almost like the spice road inspired cuisine but elevated he's a great chef he's got cool ideas and 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 then where else miami slice pizza okay yes we got to get pizza okay all right what style i might have to get we might have to do a, a pizza tour on, on the side yeah <laughs> okay yeah. okay so they make like an 18 inch pizza okay and it's so crispy on the bottom if you buy a whole pizza it's like crispy the next day sitting out on your countertop wow. i mean it's amazing and they do cool flavor combinations not weird and that Neapolitan style pizza, we have Stanzio in 87 and Le Legende on the beach where I would, I love them both. So there's a few others in there. What is your favorite guilty pleasure food? Pizza. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. without a doubt. My wife okay. said I could live off of it. She, yeah, which which topping? It's a weird one. Came from came from my brother as kids. If they sell it, not sausage, ground beef with jalapenos. Oh, it's so good, and that's just a it's it's our thing. Ground beef and jalapeno. Okay, and red and, sauce and, and ranch. Oh, oh, ranch. Sorry, red sauce. Dipped in ranch. <laughs> yeah. Remember, I'm from Kansas City. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. That's a cool one. Yeah. I have to try that one. I don't, I don't think I've tried it before. Three cookbooks that inspire you the most in your career? Definitely French Laundry, classic, Cass A to Z. I really enjoyed Manresa when it came out as well. I've never been so connected to a farm like he, he was. So I just thought that was amazing. I always looked up to what David Kinch does. Biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? I just got like a thousand of them. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the top three. <laughs> People not doing something how, after they've been shown. And, and it's, a, it's like a respect thing. Sure. You, you don't have to work here. You don't have to work for me. If, if you are, there's probably, you're probably trying to do something. So then why not repeat what I've shown you? And I'm, I'm a calm teacher. I'm a, in the way of like, I really like to teach people why. Mm -hmm. And if I've gone through that time and that effort to teach you why, and you're hiding something and, and cutting corners, that would be my biggest pet peeve. It's, it's like a respect for the culture. Yeah. yeah. The whole kitchen. Makes sense. I never had that one. It's a good one. And now, Thinking about, beside the classics, what condiments, spices, sauces, dressing do you like to have on hand at home? Not here. <clears throat> Maï, French, Dijon. Okay. Okay. Yes. 100%. Duke's mayonnaise. Okay. Okay. QP is great, but Duke's is the American version of it, and it's thicker. And now outside of classics, what do you have? I mean, tamari soy sauce, fish sauce. You have um, a brand on fish sauce that you like, or...? Yeah, three crabs. Yeah, I think it's really a good neutral, not too fishy, but also a great umami base. Spices-wise, what are my go-to? I like a, like a harissa powder I'm using regularly. And you know what? I, I like roasted garlic dried flakes. They're not always easy to find, but in comparison, when you get a really good everything spice, like the pre-made everything spice sure. shaker. That's, that's the, interesting. That's, Is it the one that they use when they do the, the garlic chili crisp? Yeah, basically. I think so. Yeah, it's a fried garlic, yeah. you know, but it wouldn't be oily. It's like oven roasted or toasted. Okay, got it. I, it's great for crusting things, you know, it, and seasoning and sprinkling on top and folding in your pasta. And I really love to use tarragon. And, and I fold it into things without people knowing. Any hot sauce? Because I took... I remember you mentioned jalapeno in your ground beef, <laughs> you know, pizza topping. Oh, a great question. I fell in love recently with a Haitian hot sauce. Oh. The name of it, it doesn't, but it's... What color? Oh, Red, excuse green? me. Belizean. A Belizean. Okay. And, and, and it's Marie's something. I went to Belize for a wedding. Simon Davies used to be the chef at Alinea. Shout out to Simon. And I bought it and I fell in love with it. And they do a green one and a red one and they put carrots in it. It's okay. like a fermented carrot yeah, and yeah. scotch bonnet hot sure. sauce. And I took inspiration from that. And it goes back to traveling and opening up your mind 
And I, I do. I love the Caribbean hot sauce being on the scotch bonnets. And exactly. So, yeah. So that's exactly. interesting. Yeah. So now we do our own inspiration of it and then we fold it into our cocktail sauce at the lounge at higher ground. Very good. Yeah. Chef, thank you so much for your time. Thank uh, you. It was very nice, you know, finally being able to have that conversation. Pleasure is mine. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast featuring Chef Brad Kilgore. We hope you've enjoyed learning about this talented chef's background, culinary style, and your restaurant Marigold in Miami. If you have been inspired by Chef Kilgore's passion for food and his dedication to his craft, we encourage you to visit his restaurant Marigold and the Arlo Winwood Hotel in Miami. Don't forget to follow Chef Kilgore on social media to stay up to date on his latest culinary adventures and creations. And if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your support helps us bring you more exciting interviews with some of the best chefs in the industry. Thank you for listening to Flavors Unknown. And I'll see you next week on the Flavors Unknown podcast for a new episode of Tasting the Future, where I highlight a new trending flavor or ingredient and mention how to incorporate it into your cooking. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at flavorsunknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.